1: Fifty years ago, Paul Newhauser was living in Boston while he attended Harvard Law School.
2: My wife and I were members of the Church of the Advent in Boston, and I complained to the rector, Sam Wiley, who was later Bishop of Northern Michigan. Why didn't the church do more about opposing segregation? And his response to me was, you are the church.
1: Neuhauser took those words to heart. To oppose segregation on behalf of the church and its investments, he wanted to put pressure on companies to leave South Africa, which was in the midst of its apartheid era. He started with General Motors. In 1971, he drafted the first religious shareholder proposal on behalf of the Episcopal Church, which he filed ahead of the company's annual meeting.
2: And lo and behold, General Motors tried to
3: keep it off the proxy statement.
1: So Newhouser took the issue to the Securities and Exchange Commission, America's markets regulator. It ruled in the church's favour.
3: And Bishop
2: Hines went to uh, the annual meeting of General Motors in Cobo Hall in in Detroit and personally presented the proposal that they get out of South Africa.
1: Though individual investors had filed shareholder resolutions before, this was the first social issue resolution, or proxy vote, filed by a faith-based institution.
3: And that really was what did it. And obviously, it wasn't just the
2: churches. I mean, this grew to a tremendous... But it started with the churches. It grew
1: Newhouse's where, resolution failed. Where, it won just a, a little more than 1% of the votes cast by General Motors shareholders. But in a bigger way, it succeeded. It launched today's growing shareholder advocacy movement. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Alice Forward. And in today's show, the new front line in the battle for corporate purpose, annual meetings. We'll look at why the number of
4: proposals has exploded. If you look at the graph for how the number of shareholder proposals on these issues has increased, it's been really, really notable just in the past few years. Then we'll go to Nebraska,
1: where we'll find out why even the Oracle of Omaha isn't immune.
0: Warren Buffett is a huge influence on corporate America, and we believe it's just playing good corporate governance for the chairman and CEO to be separate.
1: Plus, we'll speak with New York State Comptroller Thomas DiNapoli, who steers America's third largest pension fund.
5: I certainly think you're seeing more activism in terms of shareholder resolutions.
1: And we'll ask how these votes are factoring into wider questions about what companies are for and who gets to decide their purpose. some people in America, April through June is spring. For investors, it's annual meeting season. It's a time when companies' bosses and boards come face-to-face with their shareholders, who get to have a say in their future. One way they can do this is through shareholder resolutions. Some of these have to do with the basic functioning of the business, like compensation or management. But increasingly, proxy resolutions have to do with purpose. This year, there are nearly 600 environmental, social or governance resolutions that shareholders will be voting on. To find out why this is happening, I'm joined by our U.S. business editor, Charlotte Howard. Well, hello, Charlotte. Welcome to Money Talks. How are you doing?
4: I am doing well. It's great to see you in person.
1: It is wonderful to be in New York together in this very sort of swanky studio on Fifth Avenue. It's been a while since I've uh, been here, but it's a pleasure to be recording in person with you. Indeed. Indeed. So we've heard that shareholder proposals for companies to adopt various resolutions are on the
4: rise. Why is this happening, do you think? So there are a few different reasons why this is happening. One is that the really big asset managers, the likes of BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, Fidelity, these giant asset managers have expressed new interest In environmental, social, and governance proposals. And you've seen that interest expressed in their support last year for a shareholder resolution at ExxonMobil and in these long documents that they publish stating what their priorities are for companies. And so small investors are really seizing on this opportunity and seeking to advance different goals. So they're talking about minimizing large systemic risks from climate change, for instance. But I think that it also is plain that frustration with Washington, frustration with lack of progress on the Hill, is motivating some investors to seek change through companies. So you see a whole range of proposals, not just on climate change, which I think indisputably poses a very large systemic risk to all different kinds of companies, but also in everything from access to abortion. um, You see lots of different proposals on corporate diversity, which I think investors argue that you really need a diverse board, for instance, to manage a company well. Um, But the result is that you have a really wide range of proposals that are coming forward. And the other notable thing that's happening this year is that the SEC under President Biden has implemented new rules that make it much, much harder for companies to block proposals on ESG. So before a company used to be able to go to the SEC and say, you know, there's this investor who's bringing a shareholder resolution. It's really not material to our business, or it's really meddling in the minutia of how we run the company in an inappropriate way. And the SEC could block that proposal, and the company could block that proposal so it wouldn't go to a vote to the broader set of shareholders. Now, basically, every single proposal on ESG is getting through because of this new rule change, and the result is that you just see an absolute flood. And
1: what are the companies making of this? I assume they don't necessarily love being told what to do in these votes by their shareholders. So are they embracing this, or are they fighting back?
4: Well, you saw last year some companies actually support the resolutions that shareholders had brought. Um, GE was one example of that. ExxonMobil was not excited about last year to face this challenge from a shareholder who owned just a fraction of the company's shares, but that investor, engine number one, was able to win the big support of BlackRock, State Street, et cetera, and so that's how they were able to succeed. And so what you see now is companies really who are trying to work much more closely to explain their case to the voters who really matter, i.e. to the giant asset managers.
1: This is a sort of different tactic than people used to use in the past to try and influence how companies were run. Do you think it's a more effective tool or or a more difficult tool to use to sort of exert pressure on on firms?
4: Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think that it's kind of open because it's relatively new. I mean, if you look at the graph for how the number of shareholder proposals on these issues has increased, it's been really, really notable just in the past few years climate in particular, the number of proposals on climate this year are up 42 percent from the number last year, which was itself extremely high relative to years prior. So I I think it's important to note just how new this is. We think of ESG as being kind of a tired subject. But in this instance, what used to be something that companies could put out in a long report with beautiful pictures of trees. They're now being asked in a formal way to transform those intentions into action. The other interesting thing that's happened this year is that you have shareholders on the other side who are maybe less interested in diversity, for instance, and want to have companies explain why their policies on diversity might be detrimental. So there are some People, Heidi Welsh, for instance, at the Sustainable Investments Institute, who I interviewed for this story, who call those types of proposals anti-ESG. But those are on the rise. They're filed by conservative groups who are seeking to counter this wave of proposals coming to try to influence companies. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to talk about the
1: backlash. I guess that's sort of one way to think about how big this has become, uh, is that you're also seeing a groundswell of movement against it. There are a few big examples that come to mind. Um, Last month, I was watching all of the Bitcoin conference panels and Peter Thiel did the keynote there. He had some interesting things to say about ESG. Uh, The the label they've come up
0: with and perhaps the real enemy is uh, ESG. And, um, you know, it's always sort of unclear what it means. You know, you might think of it as not charitable for me to sort of name some enemies here, but I, I think that ESG is just a hate factory. It's a factory for naming enemies, and we should not be allowing them to do that. Or that, you know, of course, you can, you can sort of always ask the question, what's the difference between ESG and CCP, the Chinese Communist Party? You know, they're into social and governance. Um, you know, environmental is sort of fake. Uh, it's probably also fake in a lot of these cases. But uh, but I always think when you think ESG, you should be thinking CCP. And, um
1: and then two weeks later, also in Florida, I don't know what is in the water down there, you've had this big row between Disney and the governor, Ron DeSantis, about the Don't Say Gay bill. It does seem like it's a really difficult spot for executives to be in. Is it just that the sort of culture war has come for companies now as well?
4: I don't know that the culture war has come for companies or companies have willingly dived into the culture wars. I'm not sure what metaphor to mix. But I do think that there is a real problem that companies are grappling with, and I don't really see many companies that are doing it particularly well. But if you think about Larry Fink, who's the head of BlackRock, he pushed back against the likes of Peter Thiel and other people who are trying to characterize ESG as Counterproductive or not in the interest of shareholders, he explicitly said in a letter to CEOs this year. He said, "It's not quote unquote woke. It is capitalism driven by the mutually beneficial relationships between you and the employees, customers, suppliers, and communities your company relies on to prosper." And if you think about that kind of statement, it's easy to understand what he's saying. But all of the different stakeholders don't have necessarily aligned interests. And you see that playing out in Florida. So Disney's clearly responding to the demands of its staff that it needed to make some kind of stand. And you hear lots of companies in polls when you ask CEOs, why are they weighing in on this or that issue? They feel like they have pressure from staff to make clear what their values are and that it's a competitive thing that in order to attract talent, they need to articulate and defend clear policies. But the interests of staff, of Disney's global staff, are not the same as the interests of Florida state legislators. And so you see companies kind of pinched between different constituencies. So given that
1: these sort of proxy votes and the pressure on companies fits into this sort of very broad trend, I guess that suggests that you think this dynamic is here to stay, that
4: companies will continue to face these kinds of proposals at annual meetings going forwards? Yes, I think that's right. And you see these really, really big questions that companies are grappling with, and a key arena in which they have to deal with them are these annual meetings where it's literally put to a vote, where they face their investors and you have an increasing number of proposals asking them to pursue an increasingly broad number of initiatives, and companies have to decide if they're really going to invite investors on this, if they're going to try to align with them, how this will affect their core strategy, as well as their broader mission within society. So it's really interesting how these enormous questions are being boiled down in the context of annual meetings. And we're going to hear in a second about the
1: votes that have been tabled at Berkshire Hathaway's uh, annual general meeting. And You know, for decades, this has kind of been a festival for Warren Buffett fans and they essentially go and fawn over him and how wonderful he is. But this year, the vibe might be quite different given that he's facing a lot of these motions, including one on whether he should even run Berkshire Hathaway anymore. What do you make of that?
4: I think it shows how audacious some investors have become, that you aren't seeing people cowed by the likes of Berkshire Hathaway and that they think either that they'll be able to win publicity for their cause or they might actually convince a majority of shareholders to side with them. And then I also think that Berkshire obviously has had such a halo around it for a long time, but I think that companies are being held to a different standard. The reason why everyone has always fawned over Warren Buffett is because, of course, his investment record, but now companies are sort of being judged on a broader set of issues, so it's not enough simply to deliver returns, at least in the minds of some investors. So I think it's yet another sign that there's growing pressure on even the most revered executives and the revered business people in the country for them to do more. So even Warren Buffett
1: is not safe. Indeed. Charlotte, thank you so much for joining me.
4: Always nice to speak with you.
1: After the break, we'll head to Nebraska, the Cornhusker State, and the title of arguably one of the best Bruce Springsteen albums, which is home to the annual party that is normally Berkshire Hathaway's general meeting. But before then, if you'd like to read more of Charlotte's reporting and check out some of the many great charts in her article, you should consider taking out a subscription to The Economist. You can get a special introductory offer at economist.com podcastoffer podcast offer. And if you're already a subscriber, but you're not signed up for our weekly Money Talks newsletter, well, why not? This week, I'm writing on the subject of last week's episode, Fed Tightening, and what impact that will have on the Treasury market. To sign up, you can go to economist.com forward slash newsletters. You'll find both those links in the notes for this episode. Berkshire Hathaway's annual meeting is known as Woodstock for capitalists. Depending on who you are, that may sound miserable or like a great time. It's kind of like a pilgrimage for every investor. This is kind of like our mecca. <laughs> if you and listen I to thought- our daily podcast, The Intelligence, you'll have heard about my colleague John Fassman's adventures at the Confab.
5: We bought stock just so we could come. So are you an investment
1: professional by
0: training? I'm a farmer that raised hogs and cattle.
1: But not everyone in attendance was there to fet Warren Buffett's decades of investing success. Our US audio
2: correspondent, Stevie Hertz, has more. I'm in Omaha, Nebraska, at the Berkshire Hathaway Annual General Meeting. And this year, there are two big shareholder proposals that will be voted on late this afternoon. The first would require the conglomerate to disclose more about how the dozens of businesses that it invests in are addressing climate change. And the second would really reshape Berkshire Hathaway as a business, by removing Warren Buffett as chairman. If it was passed, the shareholder proposal would require the company to split the role of CEO and chairman. Mr Buffett could still be CEO and stay on the board, but someone else would get to write the annual letter. It wasn't hard to find Berkshire Hathaway shareholders. Tens of thousands of them filled the concert arena where the meeting was held. But it was hard to find some who made it to the resolution section of the agenda. And have you been following kind of the proxy votes and all that kind of stuff?
3: Uh, Actually, not. No, I have not. So that's kind of like a bummer.
5: Not too aware of it. Honestly, I haven't. uh, I'm not really educated about that.
2: I met Noah and Punkage outside the hall in the long line snaking past the convention center. Why did you want to come? It's on my bucket list. Punkage is a project manager. She's clutching her share certificates and bouncing with excitement. Meanwhile, Noah has the air of a Berkshire Hathaway veteran. He's an Omaha native who's owned shares since he was 18. So as shareholders, have you guys seen the proxy votes
4: that are on the yeah. schedule? Yeah. What, do you, what do you make of them? I think that the ESG campaign is a very smart one to make. And as far as whether Warren Buffett should retire or step down, you know, that's um, I don't have the day-to-day with him. To me, he's just a big genius, so I would I wouldn't let him go. How about you?
0: I'm partial. I listen to what. The- The board says is the best vote. They haven't steered us wrong yet as shareholders and what they think is best for the company is what I think is best.
2: But you, so are you, do you kind of view these proxy votes as time-wasting or do you kind of respect that that having these discussions?
0: I think that it's important that the people have a voice and so if it does differ from what the recommended vote is, uh, it's the same as any election. It's the duty of the people who can vote to vote.
2: Over the course of the mammoth weekend of financial festivities, I kept asking people if they'd heard of the move to oust Mr. Buffett as chair. And, though most hadn't, they seemed pretty keen to keep him.
0: I haven't,
5: and as far as I'm concerned, Warren can stay there as long as he wants.
0: <laughs> he got to be in his 90s drinking Coke and eating C's candy. I mean, that's a good recommendation for Warren. I think it's, it's working well, and
4: we're, there's no reason to change.
3: I think that he's done a fine job it's through the performance of the company and the leadership. We've been a part of Berkshire as a company for nearly 20 years. and I've not seen any issue.
2: But that wall of enthusiasm didn't deter the National Legal and Policy Center, the lobby group which brought the resolution. And it wasn't just them. Right before the meeting at CalPERS, the California Public Pension Fund, which is the largest of its kind in the US and a big Berkshire shareholder, said it would back the proposal. Peter Flaherty, the chair of the NLPC, said the intention was to make people confront their assumptions.
0: Warren Buffett is a huge influence on corporate America, and we believe it's just plain good corporate governance for the chairman and CEO to be separate. Directors should direct and managers should manage. Now, some people would say that he's the exception, and maybe he is, he runs it like a private equity firm, but our point is he can't have it both ways. He should exercise more control over the companies he owns, if it's a private equity firm, if it's a public company, he should have a more diverse leadership.
2: But kind of looking around us, you know, I've been spending the past couple days here, and it's unbelievable. It's, there's no other annual general meeting like this, and people are really kind of evangelical about Warren Buffett's leadership. Didn't he create all of this, and it's still his company?
0: Well, yeah, and it took him decades to do it. You're right, this is sort of like Glastonbury for capitalists. And people come here from all over the country, all over the world. Maybe you're suggesting that he's entitled, and maybe he is, but he's 91 years old, he's not going to be around forever, and lots of people are trying to consider what Berkshire will look like when he's gone.
2: But Mr. Flaherty did not get a warm reception. His proposal lost by nearly 6-1, to one, and as he was speaking, booze filled the arena. It was the other big proxy vote on environmental reporting that got much closer. Surprisingly, it lost by just three to one. And Mr Buffett himself responded for almost half an hour and gave his thoughts to the audience, in the hall and those watching at home on CNBC.
0: Essentially, you've got a a group of people that write us letters and say, we want you to do things our way, and we've got three million other shareholders, but forget about them and spend some money on this and, and have a meeting with us. And here's our way of measuring it. And, and admittedly, we've got all kinds of information up about what we've done. And they can come out to Iowa and look around. And it is the renewables capital of the world, practically. And we're the ones that have done it. And, and uh, they just, that isn't what they want.
2: <laughs> Nevertheless, Tim Humans of Hermes, representing the shareholders who brought the resolution, told me he thought the result was a success. Given that the proposal was expected to lose and did end up losing, why did you make it?
3: Why do we make it? Because we've seen progress. Uh, The company has really done some interesting things since last year. First of all, they started to engage with us at the parent company level. Before they'd only engaged with us at the subsidiary level. This year they've engaged with the co-sponsors at the parent company level and they have actually changed the charter for the audit committee which we really welcome. And they added a supplement this year to the chairman's annual letter. Vice Chair Abel, who's the name CEO successor, talked a lot about climate change and climate risk and some of the emissions reductions things that they're doing in rail and in energy. So these are all changes, and these are good.
2: So you, you don't need to win the tally to make change?
3: Uh, no, we don't need to win the tally to make change, absolutely. Part of engagement with companies is to make change and change is already happening we just want to see the momentum continue
1: that was our us audio correspondent stevie hertz reporting from nebraska as charlotte told us earlier one of the factors behind the enthusiasm for resolutions is that the number of shareholders likely to back them has swelled paul newberger's episcopal church might have owned some shares in general motors but it certainly didn't own a huge stake in the company But big pension funds do.
5: Well, I have the great privilege of being controller of the great state of New York. The controller's office has a host of responsibilities. One of those key responsibilities is serving as trustee, actually the sole fiduciary of the New York State Common Retirement Fund. That is the fund that's set up to pay the pension benefits for our 1.1 million members.
1: Thomas DiNapoli has spent 15 years as the comptroller of New York State, where he oversees America's third largest pension fund. Just in case you're curious, Calsters, the teacher's retirement scheme, is the nation's second largest. He told me about what shifts he's seen since taking over the fund.
5: A very important part of our investment strategy includes due diligence, looking at the companies that we invest in and ensuring that they are going to be profitable investments for the long term. And we believe that integrating ESG considerations is very fundamental uh, to the sustainability of our portfolio.
1: And you've been managing that pension since 2007. What was it like then and how has that evolved over time, particularly when it comes to taking a more active role in telling companies how to behave?
5: We really decided very early in my tenure that we wanted to beef up the work we were doing in terms of corporate engagement. We've expanded the staff that works on those issues and you know really beginning from an emphasis probably more on the g part of esg you know on issues like executive compensation corporate board structure we've really expanded it out particularly with regard to the e part you know climate has been a, a huge issue that we've focused on and i would say in more recent years uh, the s part you know the, the concerns about human capital, workforce management, those issues have really risen to the fore in our most recent engagements. So at this point, I'd say from the New York perspective, we have a very robust program when it comes to both environment, social and governance concerns.
1: So this episode is looking in particular at shareholder resolutions and the sort of increasing number and scope of those. Is that something that you've noticed? And if you have, why do you think it's happening?
5: Well, I, I think, yes, I, I certainly think you're seeing more activism in terms of shareholder resolutions. And I think uh, it's probably happening for a host of reasons. One uh, is that as opposed to probably going back, you know, 10, 20 years ago, there's been more success in terms of majority votes being cast in favor of shareholder resolutions. So When you have some successes, you know, that tends to encourage more uh, shareholder resolutions. I think it's also reflective of the overall, you know, societal climate we find ourselves in in the United States Uh, in recent years. You certainly have A lot of energy around various issues, a fair amount of polarization. It's probably no surprise that what's happening in the political sphere would spill over into the corporate sphere as well in terms of just a general activism in terms of of public issues. And certainly, I think a recognition that uh, corporations are important, are powerful and are movers of an agenda or can be obstacles to moving an agenda.
1: So you mentioned that you have this ESG strategy, and I guess that is what helps inform if you're going to vote on these kinds of resolutions or which ones you might be in favor of so can you give us some specific examples of how your ESG strategy has informed some of the shareholder resolutions that you've supported
5: you know what i would mention in terms of some of the specifics you know certainly uh, climate has been a, of high priority to us and we have a whole developed uh, climate action plan that looks at our investment strategy across our whole portfolio in terms of how we're managing that issue but the corporate engagement part is key to it because you know our bias as a large institutional investor is, is to stay invested in the companies that we are shareholders in, and, and many of our public equity holdings most are through index funds, right? So it's it's less a question of an active management strategy, and more that we just you know we end up through index funds in many of these companies. Issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion obviously in the aftermath of the George Floyd killing have become a center discussion across the United States. So picking up on you know what had been an effort uh, underway to have more diversity on corporate boards, particularly focusing on, on the lack of gender uh, diversity, we've really re-upped our strategy in terms of looking for diversity as far as racial and ethnic minorities on corporate boards as well pressing for uh, independent racial equity audit. We've just achieved a successful agreement with Amazon in that regard, which we are pleased about. And uh, the last example I I would mention, uh, again, this has been a continuing area of priority, uh, pressing for disclosure on corporate political spending. So those those are just a few examples of some of our target areas.
1: So you've mentioned the Amazon resolution, which you managed to resolve without ever going to a vote. You've mentioned that there are resolutions that affect political spending uh, that you are looking forward to voting on? Are there other kinds of resolutions that you're voting on during this year's annual meeting season?
5: Oh, there are lots. I mean, we have, we have a pretty uh, lengthy agenda. You know, we talked about the agreement with, with Amazon. Actually, last year, we got 44% vote uh, on the first time we, we proposed that shareholder resolution. So that was an example of... The resolution failed, but we came back, you know, this year for the filing, and because we got such a high percentage, the company was willing to talk to us. You know, at Starbucks, we had a resolution that was a priority for us that didn't pass earlier this year that called for a report on how the workforce is being treated, particularly with regard to issues of discrimination, uh, sexual harassment. Again, in response to media reports about some disparate treatment of employees at Starbucks, We didn't win on that, but I think that's another example of an issue that we're going to stay uh, engaged with.
1: So you mentioned earlier that you think these votes and the push to embrace things like ESG is part of a sort of wider political climate and societal shift, but it does seem as though there's also a growing backlash against some of these ideas and against the idea that generally, you know, businesses should adopt social positions or certain environmental policies. I guess you could consider the spat between Disney and Ron DeSantis a part of that, and Some of the resolutions on political spending are wading very directly into what is sort of a high fever pitch debate about abortion rights and other topics. Do you get any sense from companies now that they are afraid of that backlash or from adopting some of these policies? And what do you make of that shift?
5: Well, you know, there's no doubt the polarization that we're going through has an impact on all these questions, which is why... Whenever we're involved with, with any of these engagements, we always have to tie it back, you know, to the bottom line and make it clear that it's not about a political position, certainly not a partisan position. So, you know, to be engaged on the climate issue, we could step back and say, you know, should we be debating the science of climate? But from my perspective, that debate is settled in terms of the science. So if you're going to have a sustainable business model, you have to incorporate considerations of climate in your decision making because there's a material risk you know if you do not do that on an issue like political spending you could argue whether or not a company should be doing any political spending at all and for what purpose we we've taken the position that at at the very least there has to be disclosure you know to me whatever your point of view may be there should be a consensus that at least there should be a disclosure on on, on what kind of spending is happening You know, and in terms of racial equity uh, issues that are out there, a company that doesn't address those concerns is subject to reputational harm, bad media reports, lawsuits, cost of settling, lawsuits if employees are treated in a disparate way. Again, that cuts into the bottom line. So from my perspective, when we take positions on these issues, we're making very clear that we are doing it from the perspective of how do we ensure that we're going to get the best value for the investments that that we're making in companies, and that good corporate practices, being a good corporate citizen, helps the bottom line.
1: So you started in this role 15 years ago, just before the financial crisis. If you think about perhaps not the next 15 years forward, but maybe the next five in terms of how this shift might evolve, you know, where do you think we'll be five years from now on these issues?
5: Well... I I think you'll see an acceleration in terms of activity, in terms of the role of shareholders. I mean, certainly as we're coming through, you know, the, the impact of the pandemic, I think the emphasis on workforce, on human capital management is becoming a very critical issue, you know, for every organization. So I think you're going to see more of an emphasis on that part of the ESG question. I think particularly as we seem to, at least for now, be entering into a a problematic uh, marketplace in terms of volatility. You know, this year, obviously, because of geopolitical concerns, you know, the terrible war in Ukraine. You know, we're seeing market performance really being affected by that. So, the effort to ensure that we'll meet our long-term goal in terms of return—it's obviously going to be a struggle at least in the short run. So, I think making sure that our, the companies we invest in, in fact, are showing good corporate citizenship. Good corporate practices, ensuring that we're going to get the most value for our investment. I think that is going to be an even higher priority than it's been. You know, when times are good and the money's flowing in, you know, it's one thing. But when we're all struggling, as we seem to be right now, we really want to make sure the companies we're invested in are doing right by us. So I think you're going to see, if we have this conversation five years from now, uh, even more in terms of an ESG agenda. And I would guess. As more and more investors are involved with this, uh, you're going to see more shareholder resolutions and, and probably more players, be the institutional investors or asset owners, really stepping up their game in this area.
1: Yeah, fingers crossed in five years, we're not in as volatile a place for markets. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you, Alice. Our thanks, too, to Charlotte Howard and Stevie Hertz. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. If you like us, you can give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on today's episode. Are you voting in any proxy resolutions? You can email us at podcasts at Today's show was produced by Kevin Kaners. Our sound engineer is Nico Ralfast. The show's editor is Kim Gittleson. I'm Alice Forward. And in New York, this is The Economist.